text did surgery on my heart, and it continues to do so. It's, um, it's a hard-hitting text. We're in Luke's gospel. We've made it to Luke chapter 12 now, beginning with verse 13. Uh, before we stand and read this text, this is what I want to say. This text is for disciples. If you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, um, this is going to be hard stuff for you to understand. I'm just going to say that right now. And, and, and this section begins with a question where a guy asks Jesus, Jesus, uh, could you help me divide my inheritance? And Jesus says, I didn't come to divide. What's interesting is that a chapter later, which kind of ends this whole section, Jesus says, I did come to divide. You better believe I came to divide. He said, I came to divide families, uh, mother from brother. Um, and, and, and the division that Jesus came to bring was one in which you're either for him, you're against him. You're either in him or you're outside of him. And until you're inside of him and for him and belong to him, this text today is going to be a tough one for you to understand. For those of us who are in him, it's a tough text for us to live out. That's just uh, a little bit of warning on what we're getting this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 12, beginning with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, not a very respectful response in that day. Man, who appointed me as judge or arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, watch out, beware, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in, in an abundance of one's possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich farmer yielded a bumper crop. The farmer thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said to himself, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my, my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And then Jesus said to his disciples, thousands are gathered, but now Jesus is going to speak to his disciples. He says, therefore I tell you, disciples, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow nor reap. They have no storeroom or barn. He's still talking about barns. Yet your God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? 
And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. That could be enough, couldn't it? These are God's words, Jesus' words. You may be seated. So we're starting this uh, section on greed and materialism. And even in this text, Jesus, uh, you, you can see he likes to say things like consider this or consider that because he wants us to think. I want us to consider something. I want us to consider that when you read the Gospels, how often does Jesus speak on this issue of money? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but really, other than the theme of the kingdom of heaven, there is no other subject that Jesus hits more. In fact, it's not even close than money, possessions. In fact, someone said uh, Jesus speaks on money five times more than sex and adultery. He speaks far more about money than he does about prayer. In fact, he's talking about money all the time. Now, why is this? Well, I think part of it is we as Westerners, we're really good at separating the spiritual from the material because we've been taught to divide the world that way, that some things are spiritual and some things are unspiritual. And, and, and the spiritual is my private world of devotions and quiet time and going to church. And the material is the unspiritual world. It's, it's pretty much everything else. But it's unbiblical for us to make these kind of separations because God makes it clear that he doesn't care just about our private spirituality. He wants us also to be concerned every bit as much for the things he's concerned about. Like the material plight of the poor and those who are in need. And that those things are just as spiritual as anything we do in private. Now, Jesus starts this in verse 15, and he says, Beware. Be on your guard. Of what? What are we in danger of? What? What does the text say? Verse 15. Money? Greed. Jesus is not warning us about the evil of money. And I want us to see this because money in and of itself is not evil, nor is there evil in money-making. In fact, I want us to know that the ability to make money or to create wealth, it's a God-given gift. In fact, it's a God-given command. Because the first thing that God charges Adam and Eve with, it's to rule and subdue all creation. We, we, we call this the creation mandate. The creation mandate is the great commission of the Old Testament. It's God calling Adam and Eve to care for every aspect of God's creation. To bring it all under God's rule for God's glory. And they're to do that in a way where they reflect God. And one of the main ways that people reflect God 
their creator is through the creation of wealth. And some of you have this gift. And I want to apologize right now because I think oftentimes the church has has made people who have this gift feel guilty about having this gift and exercising it. That's a God-given gift. Keep using it for the glory of God, I beg you, for the kingdom of God. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, beware, not of money, but of greed. What's greed? The Bible labels greed covetousness. Covetousness is when we have this insatiable appetite to have more. It's being in this state of want. I, I, I want that. I, I wish I had that. My life would be better if only that. In fact, it's a sickness. It's what I'm going to call money sickness. In fact, money sickness has absolutely nothing to do with how much a person has. Because I could be the poorest guy in the room right now and still be the most greedy. I want us to know that. But because of the nature of money sickness, Jesus says, beware. Be on guard. Because greed is one of those things that people have a difficult time seeing. For instance, if, if I struggle sexually, I know it. If, if, if someone's having an affair, no one's wondering if, 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 if that person is in sexual fa- failure. Sexual failure, you know what I'm trying to say. I don't wonder that. But for some reason, greed is a much more difficult thing to detect. And I think part of the reason for this is because all of us in this room right now, wherever we are on on the food chain, we all know someone who's richer than us or a lot richer. And because we know of people like that, or we see people on TV who have far more, we never think, because we associate greed with having a lot, that we are in that category of have. Or could be greedy. And so we come to a text like this, and we're already thinking in the room, like, I wonder who this is for, and we don't even think it could be for us. Now, in verses 16 to 20, Jesus tells this parable to show us how money sickness can get worked into a person's life and, and how it can have such, such power over a person. So Jesus tells the story of a wealthy farmer. In fact, even just think about farming. I mean, farming is so at the heart of the creation mandate. It's using God-given skills uh, to make a God-given earth produce. This man is obeying God. But verse 16, Jesus says he has a bumper crop. God blesses him in a way where, where it goes way beyond what he needs. And so the farmer all of a sudden has a ton of extra. Now here's the tough question that this farmer now faces. What is it that I actually need? And what is it that I should actually keep for myself? And I want us to know this morning that we face those two questions. How much do we really need? 
And what's the difference between a need and a want? Have you asked yourself that question? And then the other question is, is what do we do with all the extras in our life? Now see, just based on what this farmer does with all the extras, I mean, it tells us a lot about this, this guy. We, we, we can know a lot about who this guy is based on what he does with the extra stuff in his life. Just like in the Old Testament, God said during harvest season, I don't want you to cut the corners of your fields. And then God never specifies how big those corners should be. So you could just look at a person's field in that day and automatically know a lot about that person, if they were generous or if they were stingy. This farmer keeps it. All of it. He hoards it. And because his barns aren't big enough, he builds bigger barns. Now, what you need to know is that in that day, they didn't have savings accounts. They didn't have stocks and bonds. They had barns. Now, Jesus isn't against us having a barn, but how big can our barn be? And see, this is something that we need to wrestle with. We right now live in a land of surplus. Our lives ooze surplus. How much is too much? And what are we going to do with the extra? I mean, are we like this farmer and do we just want to hoard it all for ourselves when we could give it away? Why is giving it away such a hard thing? Why is it that that money can have such a power over us? Well, I want to look at that just for a few minutes. Number one, money promises us significance. I mean, if you notice the farmer, look at what he says. My crops, my barns, my surplus, my, my, my. In fact, it's all about him. He's thinking this bumper crop, it's all because of me, man. I'm good. I'm good at what I do. I I did that. I produced that. And he can't give it away. He has to keep it. And why is this? I think it's because he's placed his life, his identity, his self-worth, his entire existence in his stuff. What about us? Very quickly, money can become more than money. We can turn money into something that we get our sense of worth from. The more we have, the more important we feel about ourselves. And we live in a materialistic culture that puts price tags on everything, where one's self-worth is their net worth. I remember one of the first conversations I had with my college friends, and we all got together being outside of college. And one of the guys over a meal just brought up, he said, all right, let's go around and let's all talk about what our net worth is. I said, shut up. <laughs> but that's just how we're taught to think about ourselves in our culture. And Jesus says, a man's life does not consist on the abundance of his possessions. We are not defined by what we have. Jeremiah 2 verse 5 says this, you go after worthless things and you will become worthless yourselves. See, this is a problem with the bigger barns. 
and, and, and when we live to make our barns bigger, is that someday that moth is going to get inside and start eating it away until it's no more. And to the extent that we place our life and our worth and our significance in our barns and in our crops, in our money, in our possessions, when it goes, we go with it. Money also promises us security. Our hearts long for security. Especially in our, our, our volatile, uncontrollable world, I think we, we, we crave this sense that we have some control. And, and, and money, in a pseudo kind of way, makes us believe we have control. I mean, money can, can very quickly make us think that we have control of our lives, control over our surroundings, control um, over the people around us, control over the present, control over the future. In fact, I've seen people when they lose their jobs, oftentimes they just think now that their life is spinning out of control. That's not what's going on. They're just waking up to the fact that they were never really in control in the first place. We don't have control. And see, the moment that we think we have control, now we've just elevated ourselves to the place of God. And look at what God says about this in verse 20. You fool! We're fools to think that way. That we have control, that through our money we have control over our life. I don't know, but I think it's the only time in the Bible where God really calls someone literally a fool. Now, why would God call this person a fool? Well, I think it's because of Gen- or Psalm 14 and, and, and Psalm 50, where it says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. And see, when money becomes a way for me to control life and foolishly believe I'm God, I'm replacing God and living as if I am God and there is no God. That's foolish. Money also, I think, promises us to, to be the ticket to get in. It's, it's the ticket into the nice restaurants. It's the ticket into the clubs. It's the ticket into the posh neighborhoods. It's, it's the ticket in. And really, this is a need that we all have. We all have this need to be on the inside. We're all afraid of being on the outside because this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And, and consciously or subconsciously, we, 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 we know we're on the outside. We're, we're, we're striving to get back on the inside, and some of us believe that money is the way to do this. Now, Kenneth Bailey, a a scholar who I read a lot because he knows the Bible from its Middle Eastern perspective probably as well as any biblical scholar, he takes note of the actual wording in verse 17. Look at verse 17. This is how this farmer actually speaks. And the farmer says, and I will say to myself, self. And what Bailey uh, takes notice of, and I, I know this just from my little experience in the Middle East, is that a Middle Eastern farmer would never act in this kind of individualistic way, especially 
when having a bumper crop like this. They would never be in this kind of isolation. This guy would be deeply entrenched in in a community. And decisions like this, where all of a sudden there's all this prosperity, it just wouldn't be self-talking to self. It would be self-talking to other members of the community. What do we do with this? But he's alone. Because that's what money does to us. In Isaiah 5, verse 8, I forgot to mark this. Isaiah 5 is such a great text itself. Um, But Isaiah 5, verse 8, God coming down his judgment on, on, on Israel, and he says this about Israel. He says, Woe to you who add house to house and who join field to field. And then listen to what it says. Till there is no space left and you live Alone in the land. Libby and I, when we were first married, we used to house sit. And we lived in a place called Carmel, Indiana, which was um, where people like Dan Quayle and some pretty affluent people lived. And some of these houses that we'd house sit for, I mean, we were just blown away. Um, I know big house is a relative term. But we're talking about where the hallways are wider than the rooms in my house. I remember being like two or three days into some of these families. I never see the kids. I realized Johnny was in the basement in his bedroom. Johnny, why aren't you leaving your room? Because I have everything here. I have a TV, Xbox, everything. Susie's upstairs, three floors higher. Susie doesn't leave her room. Everyone's so far apart, so distant. That's what money does. It isolates us. Adding field to field, room to room, house to house. In fact, if you've ever been to a third world country, one of the things that you will quickly realize is that although they might be a third world country in terms of material possessions, you quickly find out that they are a first world country when it comes to relationship and community. And you stop having pity on them because they aren't pitying themselves, but instead they pity us. Because although we are a first-rate country in terms of material prosperity, we are a third world country when it comes to doing relationship and community. A man's life does not insist in the abundance of his possessions. Now how do we know if we have this sickness? I mean, what are the symptoms? And that's what I think Jesus lays out in the next part in in This whole section on worry. Verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Um, In fact, I want us to see, I wish I had a red letter Bible up on the screen for you to look at, because it's all red before and after this verse. And right in the middle there it says, And Jesus said to his who? Disciples. 
These are guys who don't have much. These are guys who are practically homeless, who, who have to depend on the hospitality of other people. But Jesus is addressing them because they are just as vulnerable as anyone else to succumbing to the sickness of greed. And symptom number one of, of, of having this, this sickness is verse 22 and verse 29. It's, it's worry. Anxiety. Are you anxious right now about your life? Are you anxious right now about having enough? Because this is a huge warning sign that you are infected with this disease. Jesus says, do not worry. That is not a suggestion. It's in the imperative. It's a command. Therefore, to worry is a sin. It's a sin. Now, how do we deal with worry? I mean, we just say, self, stop worrying? No, really, you have to understand that that worry is a symptom of a deeper sin. That there's a sin underneath the sin of worry. And that is, there's this sin that we all struggle with to, to be God, to play God, to be the Lord and Savior of our lives. See, now we're right back in that whole issue of control. We, we want control. This is what Tim Keller says on worry. Worry is believing that God will not get it right. That's exactly it. We worry because deep down we think we know how to run our life a lot better than God does. This is why Jesus says in verse 28, O you of little faith. Because when it comes to our lives, we don't trust that God's going to get it right. And this is why we fret. This is why we're anxious. And this is why some of us, uh, in God-like fashion, take control of our lives. And we start to fret then and worry then because we know We're not that good at being God. Are you worried today? Are you fretting? Anxious? Look for the sin underneath that sin. Symptom number two. Look at verse 30. It says, For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. This is the whole symptom of just running after, running after money. You think about money. You're constantly thinking about how to make money. You're constantly thinking about how you're going to spend the money that you make. You're surfing the web. You're, 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 you're shopping. You're doing this. You're doing that. I mean, just ask yourself some x-ray questions right now. How often do you think about money? How often do you think about how you're going to make money? How often do you think about what you're going to do with the, the money that you make? How often are, are you consumed with, with, with spending your money? Or another way to ask an x-ray question that gets to our heart is, how affected would you be right now if, boom, you were taken away? Or to use Jesus' uh, language here, if tomorrow it, were, it was all thrown into the oven. See, Jesus says, he says, this is how the Gentiles live. They, they, they spend their life running after these things of, of storing up treasures on earth. 
fact, these phrases that Jesus uses a lot, storing up treasures on earth, storing up treasures in heaven, they're, they're, they're common expressions in Jesus' day. They're, they're what we call idioms. An, an example of an idiom from our world would be, can someone give me an example? Up a creek. Give me another one. I'm going to pick your brain. Think about that. I have my eye on you. It's raining cats and dogs. Come on, give me a couple more. This is good. (laughs) When the rubber hits the road. I mean, these things we use all the time. Idioms are all over the New Testament, and they're hard to translate. We just, uh, a couple weeks ago, looked at a good eye and a bad eye. Stingy versus generous. Um, Storing up treasure treasure in heaven. Well, first of all, storing up treasure in earth simply means to hoard your money. Storing up treasure in heaven means to give it away, namely to the poor or to those who are in need. What are you doing? What are you doing with your treasure? Honestly. I did some, some, some study on just like, I'm not going to give statistics right now, but there's this website that you can go to where you can plug in your annual income, and they will tell you what percentile you fall into in terms of the world. I put in my annual income, point zero zero eight percent is where I fall. That's humiliating. Especially in light of how much I keep versus how much I give away. How do we get healed of this? I want to be healed. Jesus' prescription for this disease is really actually pretty simple. It basically includes something that we need to know and something that we need to do. And first, I'll I'll, I'll hit the knowing piece. We need to know right now where our worth and our significance and our value as human beings, where it lies. Because we're all going to derive our our worth and value from different places. And I'm going to tell you right now, whatever it is, we're going to treasure whatever that place is. We're going to treasure it because that thing that we are treasuring is actually treasuring us right back. I think one of the best examples of this is the ring in Lord of the Rings. Because everyone who gets this ring, what do they call it? The precious. In fact, no one is immune. When they get it, it consumes them. And everybody here today has a precious. There's something that we have to have in order for us to feel valued, significant, that we're worth something. Because when we have that thing, whatever it is, not only are we worth it, but life is worth it. Money can so easily, easily become our precious. 
For others, it might be your achievements. For others, it might be your intelligence. It might be your career. It might be your family. It might be your ministry. It might be your reputation. It might be your appearance. It might be your athletic successes. It might be a relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But whatever that thing is, we make that thing our treasure and we allow our soul to just find satisfaction and worth from that thing. Because as we value that thing, we feel valued. Here's the deal. Whatever that thing is, moth and rust will at some point in the game get into that thing and take it away and erode it. And to the extent that our significance and our life and our worth is placed in that, we're going to go as it goes. And what Jesus does over and over again is he points us to the one eternal place where we all can derive eternal value, significance, and worth. What is it? I love this. Look at verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father. Do not be afraid. Do not fret. Do not worry. Why? Jesus is always going to not just give us the command. He's going to tell us why. And the why here is because we have a father, a heavenly father who made us, who knows us. Not a hair can fall from our head. He cares for us. He knows exactly what we need. In fact, I love this affectionate little phrase here. He says, fear not, little flock. He's reminding us what we are. We're we're, we're no more than sheep. We are vulnerable, dependent sheep. Irrespective of how much money we have or how little we have, we're all vulnerable. We're all dependent. We have a shepherd. A shepherd who promises to care for us, who promises to give us bread, daily bread, not bread stored up in barns for 10, 15 years, but he provides just enough food, just enough shelter, all of our needs being met every single day. Because he's a good shepherd. In fact, Jesus says, consider this. Think about this. Know this. In verse 24, he says, consider how much more valuable uh, we are to him than the flowers of the field, the birds of the air that God so abundantly takes care of. He says, get this in your mind. Know it. Jesus doesn't just tell us to treasure God above all things, but he first of all tells us how valuable we are to God, how much God treasures us. And I was thinking about this this week, both the Old Testament and New Testament, God calls us his treasured possession. In fact, the actual word in the original language is this word segulah. Segulah is what a groom would give to his bride on their wedding day. It was was his most treasured possession. And and, in giving it to his bride on the wedding day, he was saying to the bride, you are now my most treasured possession. And we are that precious to God that God gave us his most treasured possession. His son. His precious son. 
to make us his treasure. Do you know that? And I'm just talking up here, but has the penny dropped? Is it down here? Second Corinthians 8 verse 9. One of those verses that just sums up succinctly what I'm talking about right now. For you know... For you know, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Jesus lost his treasure for us. He was stripped. He was literally stripped to the core He gave up everything he possessed to bring us back and to give us his treasure. In fact, we have been so made to know the love of the Father. God made us for himself. We will forever be restless until we rest in his arms. And Jesus said, consider this. Know this. Get this in your mind. Get it in your heart. We need to know that. There's also something we need to do. Look at verse 32. I want every eye to see this verse. And then go to verse 33. I want every eye and heart to take this in. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's what we're called to do. Because what God the Father and God the Son, what they've done for us, we do for others. Our lives are to be consumed, not with going up, but going down. Not with getting things so we can hoard it for ourselves, but so that we can give it away. Jesus didn't just tithe his life. He gave it all. You know what happens when we help the poor? It reminds us of who we are. When I see a poor person, I see myself. Just like when I see a tax collector and a prostitute, I see myself. I see that there are no Less than me, I'm no better than them. But for the awesome grace of God. And Jesus says that when we, when we give as he gave, when we give up as he gave up, when, when we place our treasure in those things, our heart follows where we place our treasure. So if we place our treasure in ourself, we'll be consumed with ourselves. But if we place our treasure in other people, our heart will follow. It'll be changed. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty, 
we might become rich. Consider this. Know this in your soul. And go do it. Let's pray. God, thank you for the grace of this text. God, as hard as it is, maybe for some of us, and some of us could go away sad today. Some of us may have tuned out a long time ago. But God, for disciples in this room right now, continue to push this in our hearts. God, we want to see the sin of our greed. We want to know it. We want to be healed of it. Because God, as we're healed of it, we're set free from it. And God, this morning, I just pray, this morning, this afternoon, that you would continue to do the work through your word and the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts to do the work of conforming us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.